Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma Crew. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Mind Your Own Karma, The Adoption Chronicles. Today, I have Laura Engel on the show. She is a author and a birth mother. Laura was a teenage girl in the 1960s when she found out she was pregnant. With no support from the father of the child and feeling the shame of her circumstances from her parents, Laura found herself in a home for unwed mothers feeling forced to give her baby up for adoption. Laura wrote a book about her experience called You'll Forget This Ever Happened. And according to Laura, one of the most rewarding things about writing her book has been readers reaching out to tell her how much her book has helped them as well as increase their knowledge of women's lives in the 60s and the baby scoop era. Laura L. Engel, an award-winning author, is originally from the Mississippi Gulf Coast. She moved to San Diego, California over 55 years ago. She lives with her husband, Jean, and their beloved golden retriever, Layla. She is the mother of five adult children and 10 adored grandchildren. And before we get into the interview, I just want to say if you are watching the video or watching on YouTube, I apologize for my portion of the video. My guest sounds lovely and looks perfect, but I am having computer issues and my new computer did not come in when it was supposed to. So I apologize, but the interview is still awesome. So I hope that you listen. Here is my interview with Laura Engel. So we are welcoming Laura to the show today, and she wrote a book, you'll forget this ever happened. She is a birth mother and tells her story beautifully. I love, love, love your book. It's one of my favorites, Laura. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let's jump in. Can you start by sharing a little bit about what your family life was like growing up? Well, I grew up in Mississippi in the, I was born in the 40s, grew up in the 50s and 60s, and it was just your typical um, family. You know, we went to church together. Uh, I was the only daughter. I had three little brothers. My mother had some issues, but as a child, you don't realize that. You know, you just think that's the way it is. And I had a grandmother who lived next door, which was just a beautiful experience because I was her only granddaughter for many, many, many years. So she um, spoiled me rotten, (laughs) but I learned so much from her. She was like having another mother. And when my own mother couldn't deal with things, my grandmother, you know, helped me through a lot of issues. I went to school. I was a good student. I was president of the MYF at church. You know, I, I had a good life and it was a nice place to grow up on the Gulf Coast, Mississippi. It was small back then, smaller town, and everyone knew each other. It was beautiful. And then I made the big mistake of when I was in high school. I was a, a good student. I was involved in a lot of organizations and having, you know, best time in my life and fell for a guy like teenagers do. And I ended up getting pregnant. And that's when my whole life changed because I wasn't the good girl anymore in everyone's eyes who knew about it. And um, it became a big, dark secret, of course, because I, like most teenagers, kind of buried my head in the sand and thought it would go away and that it really wasn't happening. And by the time my mother found out, it was 
pretty ugly, you know, because back then, and I know everyone's heard this before, but it's so true. And I've told my other children this, it's like right away, you're not the good girl right away. You're a big secret. What's happening to you. You're ashamed. You are um, full of not only shame, but you're horrified because back then that was probably one of the worst things you could do as a young girl. So I went to an unwed mother's home that my minister had suggested to my family. At first, I tried to convince my boyfriend that, you know, he had actually graduated before this all happened, was in college. But I tried to um, get him to marry me or to do something or to help me. And he didn't want any part of it. Yeah. And so that was another embarrassment. You know, not only was I in this situation that I didn't even understand at all, because 17-year-olds back then were much more naive than 17-year-olds now. We knew absolutely nothing really about pregnancy or childbirth or any of that. None of my friends, I, you know, I never would have asked them about that. So here I was growing up with this great life, and I felt like I had destroyed all of it. I actually thought it, it was the end of my life when this happened. And I was taken away and put in unwed mother's home in New Orleans, Louisiana, the first time I'd ever been away from my home, the first time I'd ever been away from my family, and told not to ever speak of this to anybody. And I didn't. That was my secret. Yeah, I was going to back up for a second. And and you were talking about, you know, how people felt about unwed pregnant girls in the 60s. And how did people treat you? And what did they think about you? And how did you think and feel about yourself? Well, it was awful because up until then, I had had, you know, of course, I'd had self-esteem. I was doing well in school. I had friends. My life was the typical teenager's life. And when this happened, my mother, oh, it was like she exploded. And she already had issues, but her issues became even, you know, I, I felt like I was doing this to her. I was making her worse. Uh, I felt like my father would never speak to me again because he completely clammed up and wouldn't speak to me. He was so, I guess now that I look back as an old woman and I think about it, he he was mortified that his only daughter, who he loved so dearly, had done this. And it was like I had done this when in reality, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been doing what every other teenager I knew did with their steady boyfriend. But um, I don't know. It's like I felt terrible. I felt not only had I destroyed my life, but my parents would never love me again. And I honestly felt that. I remember feeling like I have done the worst thing I could possibly do to my mom and daddy. Um, My grandmother also, who I adored, was horrified. And she was from a generation that that was, girls that did that were bad girls and loose girls, hussies. and, And I wasn't any of that. My mother turned on me quickly, but then she mellowed out after a while. That first, I stayed home for a month before they shipped me away. I was actually, I, I arrived at the Unwind Mother's home in March, had my son in July. So I was there quite a while, but um, it, it destroyed a lot of things in our relationship as a family. I grew to be so angry with my parents. I felt like they had betrayed me because my mother had said, well, okay, we're going to take you to this Unwed Mother's home 
I don't know if this is her exact words, you know, so long ago, but she said, we're going to take you to this unwed mother's home. We're going to um, leave you there so that nobody knows you're pregnant. And when you come back, I'll raise the baby. That's what she said. We'll pretend like it's mine. Well, I look back now and I think, how insane is that? Like this woman doesn't look pregnant and all of a sudden she has a baby or daughter has been gone for five months. But I held on to that. <laughs> I held on to it because I yeah. felt like, you know, I think she'll do this for me. But once I got to the home, my father told me, no, you won't keep this child. Do you think that your dad said no? Or do you think that she was just saying that to you? Did she, do you think she really wanted to do that in the first place? Well, that's a question that I've asked myself a million times because we never spoke about it. All those years, my parents and I never spoke. They wouldn't talk to me about it. Um, I felt betrayed. He never told me that. He never talked about it. The whole month I was home, he actually drove me to Georgia where my boyfriend was stationed. He had joined the army. I, I always think to myself, he would rather go to Vietnam than marry me. <laughs> you know, my father had this, uh, uh, it was crazy. My father had this idea. If he went to the army base with me, we would get married and have like a shotgun wedding. And it would be, which I didn't even know that was a shotgun wedding, but anyway, without a shotgun, but it didn't happen that way. And I just feel like maybe mama meant it. Maybe she wanted to do that, but my mother had so many issues. And I honestly think that because of her issues that my father didn't want her to have to raise another child because she had enough trouble raising me and my three brothers. I and mean, she went to bouts of depression and she had a lot of uh, mix-ups. I, I wonder sometimes in this day and age, if she had been diagnosed with something, if it might've been, you know, uh, a disorder, she was very depressed. She could flip a switch. And I don't think my father wanted to go through that anymore. And I think maybe he had talked to her privately and she just couldn't talk to me about it because when we got to the home, she refused to go inside with me, which was another betrayal in my mind. Yeah. The time I needed her the most. I've forgiven my mother. I, I don't sit and dwell on this because I know it's silly to go back and try to, but for years I held it. I held a kernel of hate for both of them in my heart. And I decided, number one, I would never do that to my children. Number two, I didn't have to have a relationship with them, which ended up being untrue. Of course, I ended up having a relationship with them. Yeah. But it was such a tough time. And I wanted my son to know this. My son, who I gave up for adoption, I wanted him to know that I was forced into this. And all those years, I shoved it down and didn't think about it. But once I started writing about it, I realized this wasn't just my story. This was the story of thousands and thousands and thousands of girls in that era who had had the same thing happen to them. And the more I researched, the more I reached out to other women who had gone through this, I realized I was writing our truth, that we didn't go into this thinking, oh no, I'm pregnant. I'm just going to go to an unwed mother's home and have my baby and surrender him or her. None of us thought that. We were so naive. And when I was writing it, I said to one of my writing coaches, I don't want to sound like a victim. And she said, you are a victim. 
And I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm strong and I'm, I am not a victim. And she said, you're a victim in this case, you young girls, mm. you did not have a choice. They didn't ask us, what do you think? There was never any help. Yeah. There was never somebody saying, listen, we'll help you get through school. Nobody said that. They said, you cannot go to school now. You cannot finish school. You know, God, you didn't go to school pregnant in those days. And God forbid, you didn't even see a teacher in a maternity top. It was like pregnancy was this big hush, hush thing. And that's why we knew so little about pregnancy. You know, it colored all my relationships in my life. That whole situation did. Yeah. So what was it like at the home for unwed mothers? What was it like being left there by your parents? And then what was life like living there? Well, being left by my parents was traumatic. Like I said, I'd never lived anywhere else. And um, to have them drive away, it was horrible. I didn't know what was going to happen to me at this place. Nobody had educated me on what was going to happen. I had no idea what to expect. Well, watching my father leave, my mother was still out in the car. He signed me in and I have vivid memories of this, which I pushed down for so many years. But the more I remembered it, the more bubbled up. And it made me understand when people are a victim of a traumatic experience and they forget about it or they seem to not even know about it. And then all of a sudden, years later, they're like, oh, my God, this happened. I thought this has taught me a huge lesson because all those years of not, well, yeah, pretending it never happened. All those years of, of thinking, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then to think of myself as that young girl and to go back in time and remember those feelings and to remember my father signing the forms or whatever, to remember him telling me I couldn't keep the child in such a, I mean, as they're leaving me there. And I honestly thought they would come back. Yeah. I didn't think, you know, I was, I always had this. I was a romantic. I always have been. And I, I thought, like, he's going to come back or, or even my boyfriend would come to save the day and, and take me away. And the unwed mother's home, well, actually, it was run very well. They fed us well because, you know, they want you to be healthy and the baby to be healthy. Um, it was an adoption. Actually, you had the baby. A lot of women had it at the home. There was a clinic and there was a nursery where the baby was kept until it was adopted. I think one of the biggest surprises for me was after the first day, they kept me in, the, I called it a holding tank. They kept me in a room separate the first night. Then they introduced me to my roommate, who I thought was an older woman. She was in her 20s, <laughs> but I was so young. You know how teenagers are. They always <laughs> think everyone's old. And, um, she was the grumpiest, most miserable person on earth. And I was a real, I don't know, I was a happy kid. And I was, I always loved to be around people and talking. And so I was put in this room with this grumpy person. And then I started meeting the other girls and, and all of us, it was such a variety of girls. But what amazed me, and I remember this, we were just girls. We were not, you know, horrible monsters. We were teenagers. For the most part, there were a few older. There were a couple really young. There was um, one girl, I think she was 
she said she was 14, but she looked even younger. And that was a sad story. But I've always, I always love people. I always want to hear more of their stories. So I would talk to these girls and we would tell our stories, even though we weren't supposed to. Oh, and another thing, when we went into that one mother's home, we were asked, what do you want your name to be? This is a complete surprise to me. Nobody had said, oh, they're going to want you to change your name. And I was just, I know, and I was just rebellious enough that when the lady who was admitting me said, uh, okay, Laura, what name would you like to use? I was like, what? And my, I was still so hurt because my father's sitting there after our, you know, me crying and telling me I have to leave the baby. I'm too young to raise it. I don't know how to raise it. Mama can't help. I'm so devastated. She's saying, change my name. And I was like, change my name? I thought, no. And I said, I don't want to change my name. And she said, my father said, well, it's mandatory. And she said, it protects you from anyone ever knowing what happened. Now, this is how archaic it was. Now, we're talking the 60s. Now, the 60s are not, um, well, in my mind, they're not that long ago, right? Yeah. But they were archaic compared to now. And they thought changing a name would keep you from anyone ever knowing you did this and you're a different person when you're there. I don't think so. So um, I didn't change my name. I kept my name exactly as it was. And I had this little bubble in my brain that thought, you know what? If your baby comes looking for you, your baby will know you because you kept your name. And he will come, he, I always thought it was a he and it was, but mm. you know, we didn't know back then either what the sex of our baby was. There was no way for us to find out. And um, I remember thinking that even as a kid, I remember thinking if I keep my name, he can find me. And they thought I was rebellious yeah. doing that. But then the girls, I knew a couple of them kept their name as well, but most of them changed their name. So it was an interesting it changed me, made me a different person, really. Yeah. So in the book, it seemed like you deeply connected with your baby when you were pregnant. Can you talk about the emotional journey that you've been on through the adoption process? Yes. Almost immediately when I got there, my baby started to be present with me because, you know, all the chaos had ended you know, being in my house, everyone mad, keeping the secret. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't do anything. I was like locked in my room. And I still couldn't think of the baby as real because it, you know, it wasn't there in my mind. It couldn't be happening. But then when I got there, it was quiet. I had a lot of time to think. And I did a lot of thinking. And the baby started movement in my body. And from that moment on, I felt a connection. And I loved it. I love that baby. I never would admit this to anyone back then, but I love being pregnant with that baby. Um, I, I've, I have three other sons. I, I love being pregnant with all four of them. I was kind of weird because all my friends were like, who likes being pregnant? And I was like, I don't, you know, but I just love that intimacy of my little baby inside of me. And I knew this was probably the only time I'd be with my baby. Um, I worked in a nursery because we all had jobs at the home. 
I'd never had a job in my life and I didn't know I was going to have to work. And it was like, you have to work here. You know, it's like, I thought I'd be reading novels and, you know, writing and sketching pictures. And no, no, that wasn't what happened. <laughs> you know, you work every day. And, and I guess it's really a good thing because it taught me a lot. And I ended up working in the nursery, which was, it sounds crazy now when I think about that, putting a, this pregnant girls who are going to give up their children in a nursery holding babies. But I learned a lot about babies and I learned how to take care of them and feed them and change them. And I became really close to the nurse, to the night nurse that I worked with. Um, she was a, a lovely woman, the first black person I ever got to know because that was a very segregated time in the 60s. And I never had friends who were black. Every friend I had was just like me. Uh, I go to the home and I meet all kinds of girls, girls that I never would have met, you know, normally. And then I also start working in a nursery with a black nurse, which was very good for me, very powerful. It, that changed me too. And I, I had this intimacy with my baby. I knew he was a boy. I knew he was, he was meant to be. I had this feeling I would, I would still get to keep him. And I talked to him. I felt like every time he moved, I loved it. There was nothing about him inside of me that that made me angry. I did not have um, any animosity over what had happened with him. And when the time came to give him up, it was the most wretched, horrible thing in my life. It was um, devastating. And one of the most devastating parts of this was I had no connection with anyone I could talk to about it, the feelings, except the girls. But once I had him, it was, it was such a, um, it was like my parents came to get me. They wanted to pick me up the first day after he was born. And I understand they probably thought the longer I was there, the harder it would be. And I under, I get it. I get it. But back then I didn't get it. I, I wanted, I asked him if I could stay there and work and and um, just be there because I wanted to, to be with him as long as I could be before he was adopted in the nursery. I often wondered when I was holding other babies and here I am pregnant, you know, holding other babies and he would be moving around and I would think, who's going to hold him? Who's going to love him? And I showered those babies with love because I felt this mm -hmm. connection with all of them. And it also taught me I was a very maternal person, which I I was the teenager that said, I'm because I had these three little brothers and they were always, you know, pests. And I would say, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to move to New York and be a writer. And I'm not going to have any children. Um, you know, I'm going to have this glamorous life. And after that, I realized what I wanted to do is be a mom, you know. And I remember being in the hospital with my baby. Mm when I was giving birth, um, it was a wretched experience. They give you, in those days, they gave you a shot. It was called the twilight shot. And you get to a certain point in labor, right before you're, when you're totally in agony. I don't remember getting anything for pain. I remember um, they gave me a shot, the rest is blank. No matter how much I try, I cannot remember what happened with, um, you know, during the delivery. I cannot remember the delivery. The next thing I know, I'm, I wake up in a, 
it's like a, a ward with like six or eight women. And it's like a circle of beds. And they're all laughing and talking and they have flowers and they're all married. And I think I was put there on ac by accident because I've talked to other mothers who had babies in the hospital. I started having my, my child in the home, but they moved me to the hospital. I do remember that because I had complications. And I got to hold my son because they brought him in with the other babies to feed. Mm -hmm. Writing about that day wrecked me. I had to write and rewrite and rewrite because I cried so hard just writing. I would sit at the computer writing and crying. I would feel my 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 heart just pounding. It, it was like I was reliving it because I'm holding him knowing I will never have him in my life because they didn't do open adoptions that I know of back then. It was a closed adoption. You will never see this child again. And you're sitting there holding him knowing that. And you're trying to, you know, figure it out in your head. And, and how can this be? How can I never? I'm in love with this baby. How This is me. This is part of me. This is, I promise, I will take good care of him. I will do anything it takes. My parents finally came and got me. And I know you probably read about the, uh, when I had to sign the papers with the attorney. Uh, there was an attorney that they kept on whatever to do all the, that stuff. And he was so rude and so um, obnoxious. And, and I just had a baby. You know, I, I just, I had a baby and within 24 hours, I'm signing these papers. And this man is sitting in this office in New Orleans that I've been driven to by, I don't remember who, because I don't remember anyone being with me. I had turned 18 the month before. And I guess that's why they didn't have anyone with me. I don't know. But there was no one holding my hand. There was no one sitting there saying, you know, how do you feel about this? Or, or you know, or, and nobody told me you could even change your mind, which I found out maybe 50 years later. But um, I remember signing that paper. And he looked at me and he said, hmm, strong signature. He said, you know what you're doing. And he said it in a rude way, at least in my opinion. It was not what you say to someone who's changing their life forever and someone who's hurting so badly. That was horrible. And then my parents come. They're there wanting to take me away. I'm begging them to let me stay. Of course, they're not going to let me stay. Some of the girls ended up staying for weeks after. And I kept thinking I'd be one of those girls, but no, I wasn't. And um uh, then you go home, two-hour drive home. My memory of that whole ride is me crying hysterically, me screaming. And I was not, I mean, I was a dramatic, of course, I was a drama queen. I was a teenager, mm -hmm. but I was never that out of control. I remember wishing we would die in an accident. I remember wishing, looking at the backs of their heads, thinking how much I hated them because they were taking me away from him. Um, they made it clear I was to calm myself down. And my father was never, a, a, he was always very calm. He was a sweet man, really. And he was always very calm. He was the first love of my life. And here he was telling me to stop, stop. Look what you're doing to your mother. 
Mm. What was doing, what were they doing to me? You know, I look back and I think, oh my God. So it was, it was horrible. You know, there's no, I can't sugar, I can't sugarcoat it and I won't. It was, uh, it was a horrible thing. Yeah, it seemed like a lot of it revolved around other people and what people were going to think about them and what was going to happen to them if people found out. And I was throughout the entire book, you just had this feeling like you were just alone. I was. I, I had a couple of close friends. Um, my one girlfriend, Nancy. Yeah. Oh, Nancy. She was like my best friend. She was a sister. I had, you know, no sister. So she was a sister. And I had another good friend um, who was in the book. You read about her. And, um, pepper but I remember I was alone because I had no guidance even my grandmother wouldn't talk to me about it and if I did talk about it they would leave the room or they would change the subject Mm -hmm. or I'd get that look or I'd be told something really ugly by my mother what did you expect when you slept around with all those men I did not sleep around with a bunch of men I mean it, it was like I was called a whore um It was tough. And my self-esteem when I got back from that place was so low that I thought nobody would ever love me again. And if anyone found out, they would think so badly of me. So what I ended up doing, I think, you know, I look back in that time is I wanted to change myself. I wanted to, um, I wanted to reinvent myself. I didn't want to stay there in Mississippi and have people looking at me. And I know some of them knew and some of them didn't know. Um, I didn't want to listen to my parents ever again. And I wanted to prove to everyone that I, I was that good girl. I was still that good girl. I wasn't some damaged goods, but I secretly, I thought I was damaged goods. Yeah. And then Was it close to a year after you came back, you met someone and got married and had some kids? Actually, my brother, I, my, uh, I had brothers, the the one who was the oldest, he was only a year younger than me. The other two were younger, but he was only a year younger than me. And he um, invited me and my friend to go to a party on the beach. I had not gone out at all. I mean, I didn't go back home and start dating. But it had only been like a few months and my friend wanted to go to the party and had been telling me, you know, you have to start living again. So we went to the party and it was at that time that I met the man who would become my husband. And I I look back now and I realized over the years that he was marrying me because he was lonely. He was stationed there in the Air Force. It's a big Air Force town. And I was lonely. And I was damaged and we were both damaged in different ways, but you don't see that when you're that age. So we end up getting married and we end up coming to California. And that's another thing that attracted me about him. He was from California. And back then I had this California dreaming thing that was so insane. Mm -hmm. I just thought if I could go to California, I could be one of those free spirits that, um, (laughs) you know, it was the summer of love. And, And so it was like, you'd see all these hippies on, on the news and, and they, it appealed to me. It was a just rebellious enough to, you know, screw the system. You know, I, I'm just going to be this free spirit. And 
he was anything but a free spirit, which of course I didn't understand that. But he and I ended up moving to California within a year after all that had happened. I had my second son only 15 months after, well, after I was married, only nine months after I was married, but only 15 months after the son I had left in New Orleans. Mm. And I know why I had to have a baby right away. I was replacing the baby I'd left. But of course, this baby was a totally different baby. And mm -hmm. um, But I know if all that hadn't happened, I'm sure I would have stayed and my life would have been so, so different. But everything happens for a reason. And I was married to that man for 10 years. We had three sons. So within eight years, I had four boys. But mm. it was the most wonderful time in my life. It was not the marriage, but the children. Um, I adored being a mother to my sons. I still do, but I mean, I really adored it when they were growing up and little. And um, I felt like I was the luckiest woman in the world to have my three sons. And I always worried when I was pregnant with him. This is so crazy, but I'll tell you. I'd always think, am I going to be punished for leaving my son? Yeah. I honestly worried that something would happen to my other boys. I always had this fear from the most small thing that would happen to them. I knew they could be taken. I, I think they could be taken away, which, of course, they weren't going to be taken away. I, you know, they had a good home. They had a father and a mother. But uh, 10 years later, we did divorce. I told my first husband what had happened. And I didn't tell many people, but I told him because I felt it was fair if he was marrying me to know who I really was. He got very upset. He thought it was horrible. He told me never to speak of this again. So he was perpetuating the same thing that my parents mm -hmm. and my grandmother had, had said. And I didn't. I never told anyone. I didn't talk to him about it. I would privately cry. Every holiday, every birthday of my son, I would wonder where he was. I would wish he was there with my other boys. Uh, I had no idea where he was and not any idea even how to find him. I'd been told not to even look for him. You know, that was like a crime. And I remember thinking, you know, I can't talk to anyone about this. I can't. He doesn't want me to tell anyone. And so what I did, I shoved it, shoved it, shoved it. So I didn't talk about it. Yeah. How about your sons? Did they know about your firstborn? Did you mm -hmm. ever tell them? No, no. I kept thinking I'll tell them when they're older, but when they're older, they never were old enough, in my opinion, to tell them. I did tell two of them. I didn't tell them what had happened. I just mentioned to two of them, probably when they were in their 30s, something had happened to me and there had been a baby. And that's all I said. Mm. And it was a, a odd kind of quick thing, something they didn't know, I think I'd said, but I never really told them. So, um, and they were very quiet about it. They never said a word either they were they were very sweet about it you know they were my boys are my sons are not boys are old middle-aged <laughs> men now but they that's what I tell them they have more gray hair than I do but they they're so um they're so good to me and they wouldn't push me to say something they didn't think I could talk about 
And that was like a brief, you know, nothing. Years still went on that I never talked about it. I did get married later. And this man, he, um, we're still married. It's 43 years this year, Uh, 44 this year at the end of the year. But we was a second marriage for both of us. So I acquired two more children, a boy and a girl. It's the only way I could have a girl, I guess. And um, we raised our children together. I told him too, before we got married. Once again, nobody knows. I don't tell my friends. I don't tell anyone. I owed it to him because he kept saying what a good mother I was. I told him, you might not think so when I tell you what happened. And I told him what happened. And his response was just the opposite. He held me in his arms and said, I'm so sorry you went through that. Do you want me to help you find him? Mm-hmm. And if anything is a, you know, that was like this man, you know, his reaction was so opposite and so kind and so loving. And he still loved me and he still didn't think any less of me. And it made me stronger, but I still didn't tell anyone else. And he didn't either because he, he honored my my asking him not to. Yeah. Did I know the answer to this because I read your book, but I need to ask, (laughs) (laughs) did you ever, did you ever reunite with that baby, your firstborn? Yes. Yes. Um, I looked for him in the old fashioned way when um, I would go to a library and take my boys to story hour. And I would look through, you know, I started finding, you know, books and stuff. But it was, you'd have to write letters and, and all this. And I was so afraid somebody was going to, my husband or somebody would find out I was doing this. So I kind of stopped that because I got busy raising these boys and then got married, get divorced, married again, worked full time. And always in the back of my mind, I would think I would visualize him finding me uh, driving up to my parents' house, believe it or not. And he would be um, blonde hair because his father had blonde hair, blue eyes, and he would be walk up to the door and knock on the door in my fantasy and say, um, does Laura Bailius live here? <laughs> and of course that never happened, but um, he was always going to find me. I just knew it. And life goes on. Kids grow up. Grandkids come around. And I remember talking to my husband, Gene, about it. And one day we were talking and he said, do you think he'll, you'll ever find him? By this time, we have the computer. So I'm looking on the internet. And never could get far with that either. And I said, I don't know. And my husband said, he's, well, gosh, he's almost 50 years old. Think about it. He's almost 50 years old. And he's probably got kids. And I went, I never thought about Because in my mind, he was always this young man with blonde mm-hmm. hair driving a red car. It was always a red car. And he'd drive up to the house and find, and my parents had lost their house in Katrina, so the house was no longer there, so he wasn't going to drive up to the house. So anyway, long story short, um, I, I, we, we got on Ancestry uh, DNA. We took our DNA test. We did it with all of our kids, too. And we found all kinds of things. And I kept thinking, if he does his DNA, he can find me. And a year went by. And during that year, this I, I, I must tell you this. During that year, something re- remarkable happened. I uh, actually, I started this class. I had just retired. I started, it's two, 2016. I had retired and I was taking this class called The Artist Way. And in The Artist Way, 
uh, one of the questions is if you could do anything and nothing would stop you, money, other people, you could do whatever you wanted. What would you do? And the first thing I wrote down was find Jamie because I mm -hmm. had given him the crib name of Jamie. And that's how I knew him. He was Jamie in my heart. And I thought, wow. And every day in my journal, I would write, find Jamie, find Jamie, find Jamie. And then one day after the class, I told my friend who went to the class with me, um, she had been my friend for 30 years. And I told her, I had to tell her something. And God knows why I picked that day because subconsciously must it must have been in my head to do this, but I never planned on it. And I told her, I said, I hope you don't think less of me, but I did something when I was a kid and I need to tell you about it. I told her and she was so kind and said, I'm so sorry. Do you want me to help you find him? Just the same thing that my husband had said. And I remember coming home and telling him, I said, Gene, I told Joe what happened with Jamie. And he was like, wow, because that for me was huge. I had mm -hmm. not uttered those words out loud to anyone but him. And so I wrote about it. I started talking about it to her. I talked about it to him more. It began to be, I learned that the more you write about your secret, the secret starts losing its power. The more you talk about it, speak about it, it loses its power. But the words you're writing and the words you're speaking have a different kind of power. I became stronger. I began to open up and feel like this is something I, I lived through and I'm okay. I'm okay. And no matter what happens, if we never find each other, I'm okay. I'd finally reached that point. And lo and behold, after I, after I um, reached that point, I'm walking the dogs. It was, um, oh, there was a presidential debate on that night. It was hideous. And I couldn't stand it. So I said to Jean, I'm going to take the dogs out. We had lab and a retriever. And we take them outside. And I look, my phone pings. And I look down. And it says Ancestry.com. And I'm like, oh, God, it's probably some, I do genealogy too. And I thought, oh, my God, it's some, you know, cousin, eighth cousin that <laughs> wants to chit chat. And I'm not doing that tonight. And so I, I didn't, almost didn't open it. And then I thought, hmm, what, what if I clicked on it, said parent-child match. Mm. I am not kidding you, Melissa. I almost fell to my knees. My legs gave out. You know that old saying, they fell to their knees? Yeah. <laughs> I almost fell to my knees. Yeah. It was just like, I couldn't talk. I had the most um, physical reaction to it. I came running in. I left the dogs out in the dark. It, you know, it's, it's fenced though. But I left the dogs and I came running in. And Gene's like, what, what, what? He knew something was happening. And I was like, uh, 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 I couldn't talk. I ran in here to my little home office and I turn on my computer. Up comes on Ancestry comes my own little private page. And it says, parent, son, match. I read the email. It says, 
I um, am adopted and I, I have some questions. And that's all it said. And it was signed, Richard. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, they named him Richard. <laughs> it was my first thought. I was like, <laughs> what? I mean, it's not a name I would have even thought of. <laughs> he's Jay, he's Jamie. <laughs> and so my husband, I, by this time, has the dogs in. He comes, he sits down, pulls up a chair, and he sits down. And we're staring at the screen just like this. And I'm crying and gasping and having this physical reaction and I'm like oh my god oh my god oh no oh my god what do I do now because I'd always thought about him finding me or me finding him but I didn't think past that I didn't think okay what happens now and so Gene said be careful be careful he's a very cautious man and he also is the voice of reason for me many times and he said just you know think about what you're going to say before you say it and uh, this do you think it's really him? And I said, Gene, it's DNA. DNA does not lie. It It is, this is him. And, and then he said, just be sure. He said, ask him, you know, like, when was he born or what date or something like that. Only he would know. So I very professionally, because his, his was very cool, it was not like emotional. You could be my mother or anything like that. So I didn't, I, calm myself down. Jean went and made me some tea. I calm myself down and I write, uh, could you please tell me your birthday and where you were born? And then I had this sigh of relief and I thought, oh, it's going to take him a while to get back. Almost immediately, ding, there he is. He says, July 8th, 1967, New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm. I have two birth certificates. One says Methodist Home Hospital and one says Baptist Home. The only, the only person on earth that would know that, because I started having him in Methodist, ended up having, I don't know how they messed that whole thing up on a birth certificate, but they did. And the, then I had him at Baptist. I screamed, it's him. <laughs> and Gene comes running back in here, you know, and, I'm crying hysterically. He's crying. We're crying. We're crying. I ended up just emailing nonstop with this Richard. And at first he was very blunt. I mean, not, not blunt, very um, cool, very cool, collected. Finally, I just say, I need to tell you, because the real me is going nuts here. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm, you know, professional. I said, I am falling apart. Because I dreamed of this day. He writes back, I am too. Mm. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. He's like me. He's emotional. You know, he's, he's feeling it. And then my friend who I had told, I text her and said, what is happening? And she immediately, I hadn't even had the sense to do this, looks him up on LinkedIn, finds his picture. And she says, oh, my gosh. She texts me, he, he, he kind of looks like Ian. That's my youngest son. His eyes are something. And I, I was, meanwhile, looking up on uh, Facebook, and I got the name wrong. I spelled it wrong or something. And it was this guy in Alabama who he could have very well have been, for all I knew. And it was a guy that looked pretty wrecked. <laughs> and I thought, no matter, if he, even if he has a drug problem, he is my son. You know, I was just so, I didn't care who he was. And so then I look at the phone 
and she puts this picture up and he looks so much like me has dark hair dark eyes and he's his face is shaped like me and and uh, he's so much like me and I was like all these years I was so wrong but he did find me even though it wasn't driving up to my parents house it was on something who would have dreamed of the internet back then you know so um this became a it became a love fest really quick it was a beautiful beautiful reunion and he flew out four days later this is a person that didn't even like to fly and i flew back to him and his family i had three new grandchildren um children i never would have known about grandchildren that would have I would have died and gone away and they'd never even known who their grandmother was. And um, it was a beautiful, beautiful time. Beautiful. Was there any challenges in the reunion at all? The only challenge is, I realized how lucky I was because the only challenges that really seemed to come about were he had, um, he had depression and he reminded me of my mother in many ways. Uh, I think about it now and I think how odd that she was so against us. And this would have been a grandchild that was a lot like her, and even looked like her family, um, more so than my father's family. He was a very successful person in many ways. He was very intelligent, highly intelligent. Um, he had been a psychologist and then he had become an attorney. But he had a lot of issues. He had some anger issues. He had some um, depression issues. Between the two of us, we, I don't know about him, but I walked on eggshells a lot the first year because I could tell if, if I talked about the other sons, he wouldn't get angry, but he would get kind of quiet. And he, you know, he was happy for them and, and they met him. And of course mm -hmm. they were happy for him, but he never quite, connected with them in a way that I thought they would and I think they were you know more than willing to because at the times we were all together they were nothing but loving with him and you know they could all you know pick on mom you know like mm -hmm. yeah this is what she does you know that kind of thing and my youngest son even flew back there with me one time with his fiance for Richard's 50th birthday it was a surprise party and we were part of the surprise but um and my son, uh, my youngest son, when he was with me, I said, honey, this is so emotional for me because this is the first birthday party I've ever been to with him. And he goes, no, mom. No, this is his first birthday I've ever been with him. And he said, no, mom, you were with him at his first birthday, the day he was born. And I mean, my yeah. sons were loving about it. Yeah. They were so loving towards me. They didn't pose a, a challenge. Um, you know, with all five of our kids, including my, um, bonus children um you know there were moments that I I realized the first year all I talked about was our reunion you know and you know Richard did this Richard did that da, 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 you know and, and until finally my youngest son told me you know mom listen to yourself but you know at the same time he was doing it just because everyone thought I'd lost my mind and he understood why I was losing my mind. But at the same time, he wanted me to know. And I began to mellow out. I think the honeymoon stage was over. And uh, we had some intense, my son and I had some intense conversations. I 
realized just how hurt he had been. You know, he'd had these wonderful parents who had raised him and given him things I never could have given him as a single mom. Um, he, you know, I had come to the conclusion that this is life and this is what happened. We can't go back. We start fresh and we have to honor and appreciate that we have each other now. And the fact that I'm retired, I can fly back. I, I have the means to fly back, you know, frequently. And he, he was still in uh, Louisiana and he could fly back here and with his family and visit us. So we had, um, you know, we had a, a, a good reunion. It was, I've learned so much about other reunions. So I think ours was pretty stress-free. Um, towards the end, it got more stressful because of 2020. And I knew he was depressed and mm -hmm. I could not fly back there. You know, we were all afraid, you know, we thought whatever this virus is, it's going to kill us. And plus we're in our seventies and I have asthma, you know, it was all these things that you, you shouldn't be around anybody and you shouldn't travel and all that. So 2020 was a tough year, but we talked a lot and he had gone through a really messy divorce and we talked a lot, but I couldn't be there for him. And he just went into the depths of depression and it was pretty hard mm -hmm. I could say things to try to you know cheer him or counsel him the same kind of things I'd said to my other boys when they were growing up or when they were older you know a, a mom's job's never over it goes on forever you know here I feel like I'm not the kind of mom I was then I don't you know hang over my kids but if they need advice or if they ask me or if I can you know, help them. I'm there. And for him, it was different. I never felt like he quite accepted or understood it or, or followed anything or understood what I was saying. So mm -hmm. it was a tough time. 2020 was for, for both of us in that respect, as well as the whole world was having a tough time. So I know I had finished the book yesterday and I got to the reunion part of the book <laughs> and I was thinking there's only 30 pages left in this book. Like they just got to the reunion. And I mean, I, I, we have taught, we had talked before. Um, and then I got to the epilogue, which you had told me about ahead of time. And I have to say that, that you and I have talked about discussing what happened and we both agreed that it was part of the story. And it's a very important part to talk about, share with us as little or as much as you want to about what happened. Okay. Well, I told you how tough 2020 was and then, and for him was doubly tough living alone after, you know, and having a really messy, messy divorce and, but he still got to see his kids and everything. And I kept trying to make that like, look how lucky you are. You know, you're going to have your kids all the time still and, and you know, whatever. And, uh, he, you know, wasn't buying it. And, um, uh, I knew he was depressed, but I didn't know how depressed. And I've never dealt with somebody that couldn't seem to work their way out of it. I've heard of it and I've read about it, but I didn't know. And I encouraged him to see a, a therapist, which he said he was seeing. And what happened was um, I had just signed with a publisher. I'd been writing my book for five years. I finally decided 
it's not five drafts. It's not going to get much better than this, you know, Ooh, whatever. He, he loved me writing the book. He thought it was great. He, he read some of the manuscripts and he loved it. And he was happy that it was going to be, he told me years before, just self-publish it. And I go, no, I want to do this the way I want to do it. And, you know, cause he, he was happy that I was doing this. He thought it was great. And so um, that was like in January and in February of 2021, everything's loosening up about COVID. People are not as, you know, petrified and the world's opening up a tiny bit. Mm. And I'm telling him, you know, I'm, I'm coming back there. I'm going to be first in line to get the vaccine. I don't care what anyone says about it because I want to fly. I want to fly back to see you and the kids. And, and he was saying, you know, the same thing. And my husband, you know, was excited about, you know, going back and seeing them. And I kept thinking it'll be, do us all good, you know, see each other. And, uh, I get this, uh, I know we actually called him, um, on a Sunday because, um, we wanted to talk to the girls and his, his two daughters were there and we're talking to him and he sounds good. He sounds upbeat. And I, I loved it. It was like, we could actually talk and, and laugh and nobody's, you know, crying or upset or angry about the divorce. And I'm not counseling. I'm just chatting. And, uh, he talks to my husband about going on a fishing trip when we fly back because they both love to fish. And he says, we'll go fishing, we'll go down to the coast and, and you know, da, da, da. And my husband's like, I'm all for it. I'm ready. I'm ready. You know, this has been the craziest time. And, and then he says, uh, promise me you'll always be close to the kids. And I said, of course, I'm going to be close to the kids. I love the kids. I love my grandchildren. I have 10 of them. I love them. And, I said, why would you even ask that? And he goes, well, you just never know. And, you know, I just want to make sure you're always, I go, believe me, I'll be gone before you are. You know, we laughed about that. And so um, then he says something that I will cherish the rest of my life. He said, mom, I want to tell you something. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. And he just said it organically. Like mm -hmm. it was not a speech. It was not a, was not a goodbye. It was just a, a sweet thing to say. And I even argued with him. I said, oh, I'm sure. I go, your kids are the best thing ever happened to you. And he said, no, I promise you, you are. And within um, 48 hours, I get a call from my his, his oldest, who's a, a boy, his son, my grandson. And he tells me that his dad's gone. I didn't even understand at first. He's crying. I'm crying. I'm going, what are you talking about? And then he told me. He'd taken his own life. It was probably, well, yeah, it was. It was worse than, uh, than leaving him, you know, in the home. It was because this was final. This was this was a man who had a life and um, children and, you know, had laughed. We'd laughed so much together. He made me laugh all the time. He was funny, sarcastic and funny and very witty, intelligent. This was a man who didn't need to be gone. And I kept, you know, I kept thinking if uh, it could have been so different, 
you know, it could have been so different if he could have just waited. And, I, and then I would also say, you can't save the day for everything, you you know, no matter who you are, mother, a friend or whatever, you can't, you know, I'm not in charge of, of saving the day. I called the um, publisher and asked her not to publish the book. I said, I need to get out of the contract. And she said, she's so wise. I love her. She said, wait, just wait. I'm going to set it aside. Whatever you decide, we'll do it. You know, if you want to tear up the contract, we'll tear up the contract. She goes, but I'm just going to leave it in the queue. And you take your time. However much time you need. Take as much time as you need. And if it's years, it's years. But don't don't do this right now. Don't do anything right now. And I get it now yeah. when I'm, you know, normal again. I, I get it. You know, you just don't make a decision like that um, about anything during that time. It was grief like I've never had. It changed me again. I remember even saying to my, my husband, um, I wish he'd never found me. And my husband said, don't ever say that again. He was right. Because by him finding me, I got to know him. I got to know he had a good life. In many, many ways, he'd had a good life, regardless of depression, regardless of any hard times. Basically, his life had been very good. And he had told me that time and time again. And um, it was... Uh, it was complicated. It was a complicated grief. It, I don't know if he was put, put here on earth to um, educate me or what, uh, but I learned so much from giving him up the first time. I learned so much from our reunion. And then I learned from his suicide. It took me on a totally different path. And uh, I couldn't talk about it for a long time. And I can talk about it now because it's been three years. Yeah. Um, Actually, right now, it's been three years, and uh, I want to talk about it, because I truly believe the more we talk, the more we help each other, and it helps me to talk to you and to everyone, and it helps me to hear what everyone else has to say to me. Um, it's just, I feel like I help them. They help me. And I've learned so much. I had no idea the statistics of adoptees and suicide. I, believe it or not, had never read The Primal Wound. Um, I was very naive about reunions because mine seemed so wonderful. And uh, this has been quite a lesson. Uh, I I can talk about him now. Yeah. I can talk about the good times. I can remember all the good times. And I still have my grandchildren in my life. We, um, we adore each other. And I will always be grateful that I have them because they're part of him. And his ex-wife feels the same way that I'm part of him for them. So it's been a tough one. But I decided about six months or seven months after this happened, I would go ahead with the book 
because I was told by a very wise author that I know, she had read my book before it was published as a beta reader. And she said, your book's important. Your book's going to help a lot of people. Write an epilogue. Because I said, I can't, I can't, because it's not a true story anymore. And memoirs are true. And she said, no, it's true for when it was during the time you write the story. But if you feel like you have to tell the rest of the story, write an epilogue. And I said, I can't, I can't write that. It's too painful. And she said, you don't have to go into detail. Just tie it up. Tie up the story. So I did. And the minute I did it, I felt relief. I felt like, okay, mm. I can go on now. And I published it. I'm so glad I did. Not to mention how much work it was. <laughs> you know, it was nice to be able to have something for all the effort and tears and heartbreak took writing it but the joy too yeah I have like a you know short blogs on my website you know I write like three paragraphs and I'm like exhausted (laughs) and I'm like I don't know how these people it's hard (laughs) I couldn't do it I always wanted to write I always wanted to write and I never did (laughs) now I do yeah well I just want to thank you for being open to talking about what happened, because like you said, there's a lot of people that are unaware of the statistics and hearing your stories of birth mothers, you know, if the suicide rate is something similar, you know, with birth mothers, because of, I mean, I just, I read your stories and I'm just like, there's gotta be a statistic of that too, as well. I, you know, I can't imagine. A lot of birth mothers become alcoholics. Um, a lot of birth mothers, it's a a big percentage. Mm -hmm. Um, do not ever go on to have another child or they have a lot of babies like Mm -hmm. I did, but um, you're ashamed of yourself. Even when you are okay with the adoption, I've talked to so many of them. I know we do have issues that will never go away. A lot of my, um, I guess you got to call it shame still lives within me. So, you know, there's, you're probably right. You're probably right. Well, what advice would you give a birth mother that went through a similar thing, found out that their child had already passed or passed after they met them? What kind of support helped you? What helped you get through it? I am a lucky woman. I have a man that's like a rock. <laughs> My husband was so supportive. My children were supportive. My friends were amazing. Uh, The writing community that I had attached myself to and written my book with the help of um, the lessons, the classes and all that. I didn't talk about it at first, of course, because I didn't like reach out to the world and put it on Facebook. I never said a thing. You know, there's something there's such a stigma for suicide that you almost um, you're like almost ashamed. You know, it's like. You almost feel like you didn't do something you should have done. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be like my parents and, and think it's, you know, it's not about me. I have to get over that. I, It's not me. Yeah. This happened to him. And, and so I want them to know that, that what helped me was finally talking about it. Finally with, you know, not just with family, but to, to other groups, to um, when I was first invited to talk about it to an adoption group I was hesitant because I was like are they gonna how are they gonna look at me 
you know, I didn't do enough or I wasn't enough or didn't he, you know, wasn't I enough for him to want to live? And I'm thinking it's not, that's not why he didn't say it wasn't because I wasn't enough. It was for something else that wasn't enough in his life. And, you know, I couldn't go back and change the adoption. And I just, I want them to know that once you start talking and writing about it, just in a journal, just write it. It's, it's not something to hold within you. It's something to find someone, to talk, a support group, a grieving group. Um, I was fortunate to know women who are um, psychologists. And uh, I had gone to a grieving therapist before when my parents both died four days apart. That was another story. And I just mm-hmm. think it's so important for us to be able to talk about this because there's a stigma that you don't want to talk about it. And it's life. It is life. And you find this, this, he wasn't a child, he was a man, but in my, he was my child. And you find him and you're so happy and things are going so good. And, and when something like this happens, whether it be suicide or any death, it's awful. It is like you feel so alone and, and so you know, you just don't have a group of birth mother friends, you know, to, right there. At least I didn't. I do now, yeah. but I didn't then. And once I started talking, I began to hear the other stories and the other mothers. And we are the only ones that really have lived through this as a mother. And it's hard for mm-hmm. my other children, as much as they support me, they can never feel, and I hope to God they never feel anything like this. And my husband is a rock, but he was not a mother, you know. So talk about it or, or find a group, find someone, and they're out there. And birth mother groups are out there, um, and they're there to help and to talk about it. And we are we are a sisterhood, and, and we can help each other just by talking. It's so simple. Just you know, it's so many birth mothers I found too, even some that I knew at the home still cannot talk about it. They cannot talk about being that in that experience mm-hmm. or giving up a child. So if they lost the child again, it would even be more, you know, difficult to talk about it. Find some support, talk about it, write about it on your journal, in your journal, or, you know, like I said before, our secrets, once you write them and you begin to speak of them, they lose all of that crushing power they have over you. And you will be amazed at the support and love that comes back to you. I have been shocked. It gave me new hope in humanity because I have never had anyone say something cruel or mean to me when I have talked about what happened, giving up my child or, or losing him. Never. I've only gotten love. And, and it's out there for you mm-hmm. if, if you open up about it. Well, in closing, I just wanted to see if there was anything, any advice or anything that you would give to expectant mothers that are thinking about giving their baby up for adoption. I've thought about that. Um, I went to the Cub Convention um, or retreat, I should call it. I would say convention because from my old days of working, but um, it was a retreat. 
and that's concerned United Birth Parents. There are organizations now that are available to women who do not want to, to have to give up their child. They're there for women who have no resources. There's nobody supporting them, like a family or a, a member or, you know, organizations that they can turn to. They don't know what to do. There are groups that are helping these women get their education, helping them with what they need immediately, helping them find a job, helping them to be a single mother. Um, Save Our Sisters, I think, is the name of one. Um, I, I can look up some of my notes if, if you ever want and give you some um, ideas. But there are... Yeah, if you have the links, I can put them in the show okay, notes. I don't have them right now. I should have put it together, but I don't. But I can send them to you. And um, I would suggest that any woman give it a lot of thought. I mean... I know there are circumstances where adoption is necessary and I know that adoption, you know, is something that can be good. Um, I've talked to many adoptees that have had a wonderful life and do not have trauma. But then I've talked to so many that have not had a wonderful life and have trauma trying to find their birth mother. I think it's important that they look at all the different choices they have now. And if they don't want to give up their child, do not let anyone. I, I mean, I know I would have been a good mother. I might not have had a lot, but I would have been a good mother. And I know there's a lot of women out there that are stuck in that position. Even in this day and age, I was shocked at how many stories I heard. I always thought it would maybe easier with open adoption. But now I don't know. Is it? You know, I, I've never lived with that. But. It seems like it would be, but at the same time, that can go sideways yeah. too. So, yeah, I've talked to a couple open adoption people and it's got its own intricacies, <laughs> put it that way. Yes. I mean, how, and, and also I learned something new that you can actually, I mean, the adoptive parents do not really have to do some of the things that they agree to do in the open adoption. Mm -hmm. That's what I was told by several people at the retreat mm -hmm. and if that's the case that's not fair and that's going to cause yeah. so much pain and and I don't know how right. does that work you know how does it work I I've never like I said I'm not an expert on that I've only lived the other way but I do know yeah. that what happened to me happened and my life has been good my life has been blessed in all kinds of ways and it was it happened, you know, it's something I have to live with, but at the same time I have to accept. So, yeah. Laura, where can we find your book? Do you have a website? Oh, here, let me, let me, I just happen to have a copy of my book right here. <laughs> You'll forget this ever happened. And it's by Laura L. Ingo. <laughs> See, matching books. Thank you so much for reading it. Um, my book is on Amazon. It's actually on, um, you can get it at any bookstore. Um, it's available Barnes and Noble or anywhere. You might have to order it if they don't have it. But on Amazon, you can get it immediately and you can get it on Kindle. I am working on a um, audio book with my, one of my sons, my middle son, uh, Mark. He is a, um, a 
a musician and he has a sound studio in his apartment in San Diego. And so uh, he and I have been working on that, collaborating. So I will have that in the future. But also you can uh, find me on uh, my Instagram is storyteller, storyteller, Laura. And my um, website is lauralengel.com. Make sure you put the L in there because there's another Laura Engel, lauralengel.com. And my Facebook page, I have two. The one that I use the most is not my author page. Um, it's, this is, you'll have to put it in writing, but it's Laura L. Balius Engel. I, I go there most of the time. But if anyone reads the book, um, I, I love talking to, to people who have read it and to hear their stories. I, most of the people I talk to are adoptees. And it's just been so rewarding. The book has opened up worlds that I never dreamed it would, and it's helped people that I never dreamed it would. So if you're wanting to hear a birth mother story of the 1960s, <laughs> the summer of love, then just check it out. Yeah, we were talking earlier and I, I was telling Laura that it should be required reading for adoptees to read at least one oh. birth mother memoir. And um, of all the books I've read, yours is one of my favorites so far. So um, oh, I just want to really thank appreciate you so that. much for, yeah, so much for coming on today um, and telling your story and just being brave through the whole thing and being open and honest, you know, about your son's suicide and things like that, because those are things that people just don't know about. And um, I mean, I didn't know until about a year ago, the statistics and it just makes so much sense to me um, because I had some suicidal, nothing major, but, and then just kind of wondering why I feel like you have everything going right in your world and your life. And it's like, why do I still feel yeah. this way? You know, why do I, there's something, there's something, something so missing. it's very validating yeah. um, to hear others stories. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks so much for coming on today. It makes sense. It makes sense when you really think about it. So well, I really enjoyed talking to you, Melissa, and thank you so much uh, for having me today. And um, I, I hope this helps somebody. Yeah, I know it will. Thank you. I found it very interesting that while I was listening to Laura talk in the interview, I could hear a lot of the same phrases that adoptees say all of the time. Things like, I felt guilt, I felt shame, I felt like I couldn't talk about it. A lot of similarities between birth mothers and adoptees in the language that we use to describe our experience. And I had never noticed that before until today. So I thought that was super interesting. If you have not read a birth mother's story, I highly recommend Laura's book. You'll forget this ever happened. It is one of those books that you just feel like you can't put it down. You just need to find out what happens next. And one of those books that you're like, this could be made into a movie. The links to find Laura and her books are in the show notes. Now I want to say a few words about suicide and I just want to propose a thought because as we've mentioned before on the show that adoptees are four times more likely than non-adoptees to attempt suicide. And if you're struggling in that way or know of someone that might be struggling in that way, I just want you to listen to what I'm going to say and be curious about it. 
Since I started my somatic therapy practice doing SMGI or somatic mindful guided imagery, I came across something that made me think. And so I want to pass it on to you. What if those thoughts of suicide don't mean that you physically have to die to make them stop? What if it's just a part of you that needs to die and not your physical body, but something that is locked in your subconscious mind? It might be a part of you that you no longer need, or it's something that is stuck in your subconscious that needs to be cleared. And maybe that is what needs to die, not your physical body. And when I heard that, it just made so much sense to me. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there and see if that resonates with you at all. And if you are struggling and want to find some help, email me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com or somatichealingjourneyssmgi at gmail.com. Somatic therapy can help you easily, gently, and quickly get rid of that clutter that is in your subconscious mind and help you live the life that you want to live. You can also go to my website, somatichealingjourneys.com, if you want to know more about this new and upcoming somatic therapy and see if it's part of your winning healing combination. You can book a free discovery call with me and let's discuss if SMGI is right for you. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.